Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from this week's episode, What Will Treatment Pathways Look Like for Nash Patients? In this conversation, our guest Mazen Nouradine joins Stephen Harrison, Louise Campbell, and me in considering the question of what backbone therapy is likely to mean in Nash and which traits will make a medication a good backbone therapy candidate. Along the way, we explore what we can learn from the developmental history of treatments for hypertension and diabetes, discuss the possible impact of polygenic risk scores, and present a few views of how guidelines might evolve over time. The underlying optimism of this conversation reflects our belief that many of the agents and modes of action that have succeeded in early phase two trials are heading towards phase three, and eventually we anticipate market. So prepare to have your eyes open and your mind stretched. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, Join the discussion in our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, as they discuss why a strategy of escalating and de-escalating therapies might be the future for NAFLD and NASH treatment, this week, on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. I think, to your point, there will be a therapy. I mean, just like hypertension, right? I mean, we treat a certain percentage of our people with lisinopril or amlodipine or hydrochlorothiazide. I mean, they don't need multiple therapies. There's there's some that will get by with a therapy. And then there's those that really we can begin to build off of. It's important to think about how these are going to come to market. We all agree if Intercept's drug comes to market, that'll be huge for the NASH community. I don't think it'll be necessarily huge for our patients with NASH because it's going to be restricted. My guess is if it does get approved, it'll be restricted to a finite population of patients with some pretty strict safety protocols built in. What's likely to come is resmeterome as it completes subpart H enrollment and we wait a year and then they collect data and file the NDA. The word out there is sometime in second, third quarter 2023, that drug is likely to be approved for NASH assuming it meets subpart H approval and safety record is held in place. So kind of by default, if that's the only drug approved, it becomes the backbone therapy. And then people begin to build off of it. Unless you want to go off-label and use a GLP-1 off-label or pioglitazone or vitamin E. I think what's likely to happen is that backbone therapy will start with whatever is approved. And then we'll see how that real-world experience plays out, where people are having successes, where it's not seeming to work because let's be real, it's not going to work in every patient. And it may have better effects in different stages of disease than others. It may have better effects in different ethnicities. Let's not forget one thing I wanted to mention at the beginning, Roger, was this notion of a polygenic risk score. I think that's really going to come into play in the next couple of years and drive identification of these really rapid progressors of NASH, this high risk population. And we don't yet know how these drugs behave relative to those polygenic risk scores. 
that's something else that's going to come into play. I know we're bouncing all over the place here a little bit off of your first comment, but there's some things that Mason's saying that triggers thoughts in my mind, and I'm sure vice versa, and Louise as well, and, and you. So this is that free, free thought, free association that we're doing as we talk about this crystal ball of drug development and where we're headed. But there's a lot of variables at play, as Mason's mentioned. But I think just pragmatically, we start with what's likely to be approved, get its utilization in different populations, and see where we go. If, if you don't mind, Roger, for a second, I want to just carry on on this conversation as Stephen. I totally agree with you with your timeline thinking and putting resmitorum as probably potential first real world example that based on the projection of the data that it's probably going to be hopefully OCA will be approved but it could be resmitorum is the first one be approved which brings me to the topic if resmitorum gets approved and it does have good effect on lipid panel we don't talk about the length of treatment. When we started this business, if you want to call it, we said we'll treat NASH and now the clinical trials call for F2 and higher. There are some F1s and then the phase threes. The question is the stopping point. So let's say you have a resmitorum F3 patient, you bring them down to F1. Is that a stopping point or insurance stopping point? Or this insurance will stop you when you defat in the liver and ALT is normal. You can argue at that point, well, it's improving the lipid and the patient had dyslipidemia, just keep him on it. So those are all unanswered questions. Some of the drugs will be stopped, other will not be stopped. And that's something we never talked about to be proven in the future. Louise, I want, I want to bring you into the conversation, but I want to make one comment first. I'm hard pressed to think of a major chronic disease drug class in the U.S. that's seen that kind of de-escalation. Now, in, in terms of how people get to backbone therapy, the first class to show up tends to be the backbone therapy for a while, but then something else can easily take over so that if you look at the history of blood pressure, for example, hydrochlorothiazides or backbone therapy until there were beta blockers, beta blockers were backbone therapy until there were calcium channel blockers, which made the world more complicated. And eventually, ACEs and ARBs took over a lot of that role. But at any given moment, that was a moving target. Diabetes, once metformin showed up for the longest time, that was the backbone therapy. And eventually, everything started in metformin, particularly after it went generic. But what I don't think we've seen a ton of is the addition of drugs to regress a disease and then the removal of those drugs from the therapeutic profile. Y'all have been talking about that. I think that's historic. Let's just put it that way. And I think really interesting. Well, I think, you know, if you want to be a player in the market for the long run, you got to not only improve liver disease, but you've got to have some type of pleiotrophic effect on extra hepatic metabolism. You've got to move glycemia in a positive way, or you've got to move atherogenic lipids or ideally both. One of the things we're talking about at the Emerging Topic Conference, I believe Brent Tetry is going to be speaking on what is the ideal NASH drug? What does it look like? Is it an oral, once daily, no side effect, hits NASH, hits fibrosis, atherogenic lipids, glycemic control, weight loss, you know, that's kind of like the ideal drug. But is there any out there? No, there's not. Not today. But it's a goal to shoot for. It's certainly an aspiration. But the, the reality is, Mason brought this up at the beginning, we're going to use NITs to drive response to therapy. Where we're at with that is we're still trying to refine magnitude of effect changes and what that means relative to histopathologic changes. But PDFF has come a 
long way. And drugs that actually move liver fat, you know, like the 21s, like the 19s, like the, the THR betas, you know, some some haven't been studied. You brought up Lanny Mason. I don't have any data on Lanny with PDFF. In fact, if you look at their presentation, they talk about two-point improvement in the NAS. They talk about NASH resolution and fibrosis improvement, but there's no comment made about steatosis. That mechanism, I've yet to see a lot of data seeing what happens with NITs relative to Lanny. They're out there for sure. ALT has been shown to be agnostic to mechanism. PDFF generally is if you're a metabolic drug, although there are drugs that aren't moving PDFF that appear to be having positive impacts on other NITs or even histology like a PPAR delta like Cella Delpar. There's additional data coming with MR elastography. There's, of course, your mast score and other components of combining MR with clinical biomarkers. So we're, we're moving there, we're getting there, and I think that will drive this paradigm of whether we switch drugs, add drugs, change combos, or whatnot will be driven by AE profiles, patient wishes, payers willing to pay for drug A over B, and then ultimately efficacy. And cost. I totally agree with all what you said. And Roger, to the point you said about backbone is not going to be straightforward. Let's say resmitarom is the first drug that's going to get approved. Again, we, we, we sincerely hope that OCA will be approved. Let's just assume for this conversation, resmitarom. I think SEMA is a great drug, but I don't think it's straightforward backbone therapy. It has been on the market for type 2 diabetes. It's not an easy access. It's very hard to approve by insurances. It's um, expensive drug and not all type 2 diabetes patients gets it. So logically, you cannot rely on that as backbone therapy. It's going to be short-term therapy, especially now it doesn't have fibrosis signal for our patients. Same as for other injectables, they're probably not going to be your backbone therapy. It's going to probably be short because it just costs more to manufacture them. So it's way more complex than just say, well, the next drug after esmeterum is going to replace it. No, cost is going to dictate what is going to replace and what's not going to replace that in addition to side effects and long-term hard work and all that. I think both the guys are absolutely right. There will be escalation and de-escalation in the F4 categories that have to happen more or less immediately. I think F3, yes, we have a little bit more time. When we talk about backbone, I was taken back to Suzanne Norris's presentation at the NASH Symposium, where she was showing quite a lot of data on just minor changes in exercise diet that again made significant change. Will we be forced to that to be the backbone? And that was her question is what will a patient have to have achieved or failed to achieve to get access to some of these medications? Some ballpark figures of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year. Is that not what's going to be the backbone for a lot of patients in lower stages that you have to go through a more coordinated dietetic exercise, non-invasive monitoring. I've been recently doing some patients and 77% of the patients that I've been doing with serial fibre scans have dropped their liver fat. So what do you have to show, for example? And the comment on the ideal NASH drug, but what is the ideal NASH patient? I know a lot of people who are quite prepared to sit and eat what they want and take a drug, but that's not what we've enrolled into clinical trials. We've enrolled people that are going to 
follow a clinical trial program, not people who just want to eat and eat and have medication. So what if we start to show with all of these drugs that in the real world scenario is we actually just continue to load liver fat and fibrosis despite evidence-based medications in a trial setting with somebody who's compliant changes their liver fat? How are we going to pick the right patient for the right drug? It just raises questions because, as I say, we're not looking at the real world patient. We're looking at a clinical trial patient. I think weight loss and exercise is absolutely the fundamental first step when they come to our clinic. And we should recommend it to every single patient and keep pressing on it. One step we should all take. Type 2 diabetes patients, nutritionist is covered by insurance. Our NASH patients, it's not yet. Why is that? It's, it's a big mistake. So we should implement that. But also, in my mind, we already established that F2 patients and higher, they have increased morbidity and mortality. If you get to F3, 20% of patients get to services in a period of time within two years, get the weight loss and exercise going. But I don't think adding medications is the wrong thing to do, starting from F2 and higher. Some of these medications, actually, they will help their diabetes. You don't just type 2 diabetes patients, you start them on medications. So I think we already established that, in my mind, that fine line when to start therapy or not. In my mind, with F2 and higher, I think we should start therapy in addition to weight loss and exercise. And we have that group F0 and F1 that this is when where you already have your grace period that you should try to do anything possible with weight loss and exercise. I have patients in my clinic that some of some people I know is like, oh, you're cirrhotic. You have an cirrhosis, drink a gallon of coffee. It's not going to do anything for them. Coffee, the first recommendation. Well, no, it's like ACC screening, endoscopy. Uh, put coffee at the end. <laughs> coffee is too late at the cirrhotic stage. And they should be well on diet and exercise as a first line before they get to you guys, because it's the minority of people who get to see specialists like yourself and Stephen and the consultants that I've worked with. So again, it's about the minority, not the majority. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back on Wednesday, May 26th to preview International Nash Day. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.